We turn again to the book of Titus, the letter of Paul to Titus, and chapter 2. My title this morning is different to what it says on the sheet, God's plan for his people. I intended to speak on the exhortations at the beginning of the chapter, and we may come to that later, but I'm minded through preparation and the help of the Holy Spirit to think particularly to start with, with the crescendo of this chapter, which I believe to be verse 14, and then if we have time, we shall work backwards, and we shall come to some of the exhortations, the divine wisdom. We've been thinking of God's instruction to men, to women, to children, to teenagers, to families, to marriages in recent weeks. God's plan, God's purposes, the instruction that he gives to us so detailed, instruction that tells us how to live as Christians. But really, verse 14, which I am so drawn to this morning, is the key to unlocking the whole of this chapter. We see here three things. We see God's plan to redeem. And that's a message for all of us this morning. Redemption has already been accomplished on the cross as Christ took that enormous load of guilt and sin. Sometimes I say, and perhaps it's mistaken that I've said it this way, that Christ will take your sin. Sometimes preachers say things and we use expressions which are not quite theologically correct. And we should say, Christ has taken. He's already taken that punishment. He's borne it. That is redemption. It was that Christ took my sin. When we preach the gospel, we sometimes say something like this. We say, if you obey God's voice, if you repent of your sin, if you come in faith, your sin will be taken away. And in a sense, that's also true. But the transaction, it's already accomplished. He already has taken my sin and your sin if you will repent, if you will come to him. Redemption, we shall touch on that. He gave himself. Why? To redeem us. We'll come back to that. But then there's a second thing, and we'll come if we have time. Once he's redeemed us, What's the plan? What's the purpose? If we're redeemed, why doesn't he take us straight to heaven? Well, he then intends to purify us, to make us clean. Yes, legally we're clean. The sin, the iniquity, the guilt, the sentence, the condemnation has been taken. But this vessel is not clean. I still have a battle going on inside me between the old man and the new man. 
and my tastes and desires and thoughts and decisions and my words and my life and my living need to be purified. That's what the verses leading up to the crescendo are all about. We shall see the 23, I think it is, commandments, instructions that are given to the men, to the old men, to the young men, to the young women, and so on. But then we can ask, why? Redemption, purification or sanctification, but there's a purpose in both of those. Why does God redeem a people? Why does he purify us day in, day out? Well, it says, so that he purifies us unto himself to make a special, a peculiar, a different people set apart unto himself. Why? So that we would become zealous, devoted, given unto good works. Do you see God's perfect plan? for all his people. It's not for the world. It's not for those he didn't die for. There are those he didn't die for. The scripture is so clear. Christ died for his people. He died for the elect. He died for those that were chosen before the foundation of the world. And those people he's taken their punishment. Oh yes, Whosoever will may come and drink of the waters of life freely. But he has died for his people. Look at the tense. Verse 13. This is speaking to the Christian. We're looking for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave. Past tense. It's happened. Paul is writing to Titus some years before Christ gave himself. The transaction has already been accomplished. Redemption accomplished. But now in time, praise God if he would hear us, even this morning, maybe this evening, that redemption will be applied to some heart. There would be somebody that says, Christ died for me. If I would come to him, if I would confess my sin, then even for me, would not that be applied? The redemption that's already accomplished would be applied to my heart. Well, I want to show you the cohesiveness of God's plan. It's all joined up. It's one plan, redemption, purification, fruitfulness. I want to show you the wisdom of God, what he started before time, as we say, he's outside of time, what he started in that great covenant, he has accomplished, he will further apply it. And he has finished it in salvation. And he'll finish it in your life. What he started, the good work that he's begun within you. 
to take your punishment, to take your sin. Now he will carry on that process of purification and one day it will be complete and as it says in verse 13, we will see his glorious appearing of the great God and of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. And that is the ultimate purpose, redemption, purification, fruitfulness, and he'll present you and me no longer a sinful body no longer subject to sickness, no longer a war going on between the old nature and the new. And we will see that his work is done. What will he do? He'll present us faultless. Faultless. How can that be true? I'm not just full of fault mistakes, errors, I'm full of sin. And yet one day he will present me faultless, and you I trust, before the throne of God in heaven. And we will stand there before him with no condemnation. Well, let's look at this verse. Verse 14, we dwell, we hover here because I have to. Who gave himself for us. He gave him whole, his whole self. Not a part, but the whole. Yes, he had to lay aside some of his glory, but all of his divinity, all of his power, all of his love was given for us, uncompromised. God and man. He gave himself for us. It was undeserved. This wasn't a gift that was earned. It wasn't a gift that we could have any hold upon. But he gave it. What's more, he gave it to those who hated him, despised him. He gave it to those who for many years in their life rejected him. And yet, he gave it on the cross knowing what we would do to him, what we would be like to him. He gave it to those who blasphemed him, who spoke badly of him, things that were not true, people who accused him. He gave it to those who forsook him, even his own disciples, many of the men were nowhere when he needed them most, who gave himself for us. He gave it willingly. People don't understand this. They think that what happened in Gethsemane, what happened on the day of atonement, they thought it was a surprise. He was taken by force against his will. No! Everything, everything was planned. Everything was permitted. Everything 
was the will of God and Christ in the second person of the Trinity. He didn't allow it, he chose it. Because it was his will. He gave himself sacrificially. He gave. He didn't hold anything back. That's what love is, isn't it, in a marriage? Love isn't a feeling. Love isn't what I get back. Christ got nothing back from me when he died. What he gets back now is just a faint, feeble response. But he gave himself. He gave himself as a servant. All the way through his life he was serving. Washing feet. Teaching his disciples that didn't understand the ABC. He came to rescue to deliver. He came to take us from the darkness of sin, out of despondency, into hope. He came to deliver us, to rule us, if we would have him to rule over us. There's a lovely verse, I think it's so parallel to this verse in Titus. It was told me by a dear sister this week. Ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. You see, he gave himself. And now no longer do we own our body and our life and our soul. It's owned by him. We're not our own. We've been bought with a price. Christ has paid that price. And so what does he say? Glorify God with your body, with your life. Everything should now be for him. He's come and he's given himself for us. Incalculable cost. Just think of the blood. On the day when the temple was dedicated, Solomon's temple, just think of the cost Animals, 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep. That didn't include those that were brought by families, probably one or two per family. How many animals? 300,000? Just think of the blood. The streets of Jerusalem would have been flowing with the blood of beasts, the smell, the stench of death. The garments of the priests, they would have gone home at sunset after the animals had been taken and their, their, their throats slit, the blood poured. What a sight. What a smell. The stench of death. Why? Why? Why so many animals? Wasn't one enough? No, it had to speak of Christ. It had to speak of the cost. It had to speak that life had to be given for life. A bloodbath. Can I say that reverently? A bloodbath. 
on the streets of Jerusalem. What a cost. What a price. Speaking of the gift of Christ who gave himself for us. Extraordinary. Blood is so important because the scriptures tell us, Hebrews 9, 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, no remission, no taking away of the guilt, the stench, the stain of sin pictured on the garments of the priests. But all that stench, stain, all that sin, that sentence, was taken away. Not will be, was. It's done. And it's done for all who would put their trust in Christ this morning. And whenever Christ should determine that his people should hear his voice. So we have here redemption, but let's work backwards. This whole chapter, we're told at the beginning that we should speak the things which become sound doctrine. We're told in verse 15, the final verse of chapter 2, these things speak, exhort, rebuke with all authority. The chapter really is about purification. This is addressed to believers. The exhortations that are occurring in verse 2 onwards, this is believers being instructed and told what God's word says. Those that have already come to Christ, they now have to be purified. We thought in recent weeks the specific instructions given to the different stages of life. Purification, sanctification, the process by which we are made cleaner and cleaner, progressively. How does this happen? Well, it happens through the word of God being applied. We listen. We obey. We follow. Some of us have to learn the hard way. Because the first time we don't obey. Some of us have to learn perhaps an even harder way because afflictions and trials come to us. And we say with the psalmist, it was good for me that I was afflicted. Very often the sin that we commit in our own lives is used to bring us to our knees and to pray. Sometimes it's the sin of others, sometimes it's the fallen world that we live in. But this is the antidote, the instructions for us to be made increasingly clean, not legally, but clean in our lives. What we do, what we think about, what we say. He gave himself, it says back in verse 14, for us to purify us. Look at himself there, mentioned twice. Verse 14, he gave himself for us unto himself. It's all about Christ. Redemption isn't really about me. Purification, it's not really about me. 
the end, the purpose is about what we become for him, for him. Verse 15, there's authority mentioned again. It's my duty this morning to try to give the instructions of God with power, with authority, so that you don't hear my voice, you hear God's voice. What does the Lord say to me? Well, let's go and look at the instructions very briefly. Verse 3, he speaks to aged women. He speaks later on to aged men. Verse 2, rather before. He speaks to young women, young men. And there's a cohesion. You notice here that it's the aged women who are to teach. The word for teach is not the normal word for teach. Verse 4, it says that they may teach the young women to be sober. Don't get any ideas. Women, the word of God says very plainly, are not to preach, not to exercise authority over men. They can teach children. And the word here for teach from the older women, the aged women, to the younger women, it's a different word. It's not the word for preaching and teaching God's truth. It's the teaching that comes from admonishing, setting an example, drawing alongside, I heard this phrase, side-by-siding. It was said to me very helpfully by my wife. She said there is a sense in which every woman has a younger woman that they can speak to. When you think about it, you line up the ages. There's always a younger woman that we can draw near to. And what are the older, not aged as in gray hair and elderly, but in God's cohesive plan, he says that they may draw alongside, verse 4, the young women, and they're to teach them by pattern, by example, by kind words, to be sober, serious, to love their husbands. Do you know so many of the problems that go wrong in marriage, I believe, are the men's fault. Sometimes it's the women. They won't accept the authority of their husband. And maybe that's because their husbands don't love them and they don't love their husbands. You see, it all works together in God's glorious plan. And so the older women, if you have an opportunity for conversation, if you can set an example, show the younger women how and whether, and when, and why, to love their husbands. What a pattern. What a good thing it would be. And then it says here, to love their children. Sometimes children are not very lovable. Sometimes they're difficult. They try us, they test us. Oh, I've got one in my family. No one else has got one like her or him. Love them. Set them an example. Show them your love. 
That's what the older woman should say to the mother that's struggling. Love them. Show them love. They'll respond to it. You see God's plan? How can we do it? We really can only do it if we've been redeemed, if we've been saved, if Christ is living within us, if the power of the Spirit is helping us to overcome our natural inclination, which is to shout and holler and say, Stop it! But the Lord says to the older women, Show them. Teach them. Don't preach. But show them love, your husband. Show them love, your children. Show them to be discreet, verse 5. That means trustworthy, able to hold confidences, chaste, pure. Keep us at home. That has a different application today when we have so much help to do the chores and other things. We don't have to spend so long churning the milk to turn it into butter, winding the mangle. But we can be keepers of a home, makers of a place which is safe, secure, a place where our children and husband wants to be, where there is love and nurture. Maybe there's time for other things outside of the home. Each has to make their decision. You know your constraints. You know your difficulties. You know your mortgage. You know your particular children, whether you can homeschool, whether you can't, whether you're given to that. But we are to be keepers at home. Some of you have to have three jobs, mothers, fathers. That's hard. You struggle to make in ends meet. I can't tell you what you should and shouldn't do. You know the Word of God gives us the principles. We apply them. Only if there's grievous sin do we step in and draw alongside and seek to help and to encourage. Obedient to their own husbands. It says it again, love husbands and obey husbands. Why? That the word of God would not be blasphemed, that there's no contradiction. That Ephesians 5 does not say one thing and our life says another. Well, what about the young men? Well, they too are to have exhortation, preaching, teaching, Example, it's a wide word. And verse 7, there's some overlap here, sober, serious. That's been repeated to the women and to the men. And what are the young men to do? Have a pattern, an example to the children of good works. Are you setting an example, young men, this morning? I'm speaking to those in teenage years, 20s, 30s. Do you set a good example? If you love Christ, if you're one of his people, are you serious-minded? Are you those that people look to and say, I want to be like that? That person, they're sacrificial, they're servant-like. They put the Lord first. 
They get to all the meetings that they can. They move the chairs without being asked. They do everything. There is a pattern of good works. If a brother's sick, they go and visit. If somebody's struggling, they help. This is practical Christianity. This is what those who've been redeemed and who have been purified and still need to be purified, that's what they do. And that's what they love. And for them it's willing. It's obedient. It's a choice. And that's what they want to follow. Well, let's come to the final phrase in the very brief time we have back to verse 14 redemption purification sanctification what's this all for why what's the purpose because christ would have you and me if we love him to be his people peculiar that word means something different than it used to People say the word peculiar today is odd. Look at how they dress. Look at how they behave. They keep the Sabbath day. They're peculiar. But it doesn't mean what we think it does. It means special. Set apart. Those who are consecrated. Those whose lives belong exclusively to Christ. People who don't care what others say and think. They don't go out of their way to be odd, to be strange. They don't go out of their way to stick out like a sore thumb. But they don't mind obeying God. And as this special people unto himself, they are zealous of good works. Literally it means devoted given, giving over their whole life alongside their other duties to be zealous, focused, attentive, energetic for good works. Not so people see them. Oh no, we never do any good work. So it's seen. We don't say, look at me, look at the gifts that I'm giving to other people. No, the left hand, the right hand shouldn't know what we're doing. No, our good works, as far as we can, they're under the counter. They're out of sight. Because we don't need people to see them. Because they're for him. They're for our Saviour. They're for the one who has redeemed us and who is purifying us. I don't know where the time has gone this morning. That's God's plan for his people. It's a perfect plan. It's the same plan that ever was and that ever will be. It's the plan that started before time began. It's the plan that came when Christ appeared in full sight. And it's the plan that was accomplished at Calvary. And it's the plan that's being applied to all his people in redemption 
and in purification. And as he's doing it, he even uses people that are a work in progress. He is having a people for himself. And one day, when he appears, we will be glorified. And that work will be finished. And we will be made perfect, not just legally, but also in every sense. And we will be presented before him faultless, blameless. Oh, may the Lord help us in these glorious